and she just put her hand on my shoulder and she said, you have cancer and it F word sucks and it's mm-hmm. okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. Mm-hmm. Forget the warrior and the fighter yes. language. It's okay to just say, this is, this is the worst, you know, mm. some of those kinds of words. Mm. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief for me to say, right. oh, like something honest mm-hmm. is being spoken. You are listening to Laura Holmes Haddad. She is the author of the brilliant book, This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know from the Waiting Room to the Bedroom. And I am your host, Sherry Kosky. Come join us in the very first episode of the Tandem Healing Podcast. These days, it seems we are saturated with difficult news about the state of healthcare in our country. We have our political positions on types of health care we prefer, and these become part of the intense divide that we feel with our fellow Americans. Yet, when we find ourselves in a health crisis of our own or attempting to support our children or family members in their health struggles, we become laser-focused on the minutia of treatments, research, experts, side effects, all the while we feel incredibly vulnerable and in need of support. We become more isolated due to the illness, and yet we need more human contact. We seldom talk about the more intimate challenges we face. We seldom talk about how our marriage is holding up under the stress of caring for a sick child. We seldom talk about the harsh truths we face in dealing with our mortality. This day is different. Today, I sit down with a lovely Laura Holmes Haddad, whose life story is one of surviving, thriving, and giving. She is a mother, sister, wife, daughter, and devoted friend who experienced life as an author in the glamorous New York City food culture after graduating college. She met her beautiful husband in New York, and they moved with his work to L.A. There she continued her writing as a cookbook author and food and wine aficionado. They moved to Northern California, where she grew up, when her daughter was a few years old. A few months into breastfeeding her second child, their lives changed forever as she was diagnosed with stage 4 inflammatory breast cancer. At 37, she was facing a daunting prognosis and feeling incredibly ill. How did this young, vibrant, yoga-practicing woman now find herself fighting for her life? Laura is a friend of mine, and I do feel grateful for her taking the time to share her incredible story of healing with me. She is vibrant, witty, sparkly. Her radiance is filled with all of life, including the grief earned by years of physical pain and loss of functioning. In her presence, you feel her urgency to live fuller days, as much as her body will allow, for these precious moments with her two kids and her husband. So it is no surprise that today's conversation reaches into these depths. We explore her shifts in identity from vibrant mom to patient to survivor, her relationship to her body, as well as her experiences of the doctor-patient relationship. Most importantly, we look at her deep family connections and how these loving relationships carried her through what she calls cancer land. Lastly, she speaks of her desire to help other patients through this road trip in her book, This is Cancer, 
Everything You Need to Know from the Waiting Room to the Bedroom. The force of this book lies in its honesty, the raw exploration of her pain, her struggles, and her intimacies. You feel her feelings of betrayal, her courage, her fatigue. Lara's exquisite humor joins the difficult, the terribly real, with the deeply wise experiences gained by living with cancer. Lara's voice becomes that good friend that can tell you the ugly truth and yet remind you of the preciousness of life at the same time. This book is packed with resources and detailed informative tips on every phase of cancer treatment for the patient as well as other family members. As you can see, she is the perfect person to be the first guest of the Tandem Healing Podcast. This is a beautiful discussion. She is a beautiful woman. And with that, I bring you Laura Holmes Haddad. Well, let's do it. We're starting. I'm so glad to have you. I'm so truly honored. I'm so happy to be here. Well, yay. Okay, so we are friends. Let's just start there. And um, I've read your book, and I do feel what's fascinating to me is that I came to know you almost in this uh, very different way from your book, from how I know you, you know, at the pool. And I... Honestly, we're, we've not been that close. I remember the f- very first time I saw you, you had this giant hat on. We were at the pool. I was like, who is this lady dressed in these gauzy clothes and this giant hat? <laughs> I went up to you, and I was so touched by you because I think within five minutes, we were having a very real conversation, and we were talking cancer within a few minutes. Um, and I imagine that's not how you meet everybody. I mean, maybe it is. <laughs> Definitely not. Especially um, the ramifications of cancer. Like, for example, the hat and the gauzy clothes are right. to protect me from skin cancer. So mm-hmm. sometimes, especially in social settings, I'll explain things in the view and the parameters of cancer just to kind of give people an idea mm-hmm. of what is going on, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you feel like you have to in a way? Do you, or are you kind of past that phase? Like, You know, it's interesting. I go through days where I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to have to explain everything. But then the reality of life is that, for example, if I... Um, and volunteering, I have to say I can't lift books because of the lymphedema in my left arm. Or mm-hmm. um, if I get mm-hmm. a carry out at the grocery store, you know, you, it feels strange to mm-hmm. ask for help um, in those sorts of situations. But I've had to get comfortable with that um, because I have to take care of me into survivorship, which is, mm-hmm. I think, that people something people don't talk about. They think that when you're out of treatment, it's over and done with, when mm-hmm. in reality, I would say 99.9% of us you know, have lingering issues that, that come up. Well, and they're also hidden. I mean, you're young and beautiful and vibrant. Your energy is so vibrant. So that's, this, that's kind of what you project into the world. And yet here you are then having to then explain something like this more invisible experience that's... Um, kind of controls a lot of your daily experience. But here you have to tell the guy 
or ask for help maybe with at the supermarket because you can't lift the groceries. And I really love that you brought up the word invisible because that was something that I really struggled with as a patient and as um, someone with this disease at the time, you know, this deadly disease that I couldn't see that, Mm. you know, you think about that it's taking over your body and how it's affecting you physically and emotionally, but you can't see it. Um, Right. And that's really hard as a patient to wrap your head around. You know, I'm not a scientific person. So, you know, looking at a cell, a picture of a cell doesn't help me imagine what is going on. And so Mm -hmm. I really struggled with that. Um, the, I don't know if the conflict or the duality of something that's going on in your body and something that you cannot see. Right. Really, really um, overwhelmed me for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And yet for you in particular, you actually had a very prominent, once you knew about your tumor size, like you actually had a very palpable experience. So on the one hand, you had something painful, which is different than a lot of people say with breast cancer, um, that have not only an invisible disease, but they also can't register a feeling of it. Like, well, I'm dealing with something that maybe is putting my life on the line and I can't even see, I can't even see the enemy where, how do I deal with that? You know, I was, would imagine for patients, that's an incredibly difficult experience, but, um, Definitely. And I, the pain that I experienced, I'm just so immensely grateful for because that's what got me into the doctor. I think it was really my body saying, you know, that and along with some physical signs where I thought, for example, I had um, the stomach flu or food poisoning three weeks in a row. And finally it was my sister who said, I don't think you have food poisoning. I think it's your body you know, but now that I realize it was my body saying, you need to wake up and pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and then once the physical aspect of my cancer was gone, you still, when you're in treatment, for example, you know, you see the fluids, but they're clear, the chemo drugs, you know, you see these things that are supposed to help you, but they're still almost, um, invisible to you. You know, it just, I can't even explain it. It feels like you're just in this alternate universe and you think, like I would think, you know, because I had been pregnant two times with my kids, I always thought about, wow, while I slept last night, you know, the baby's Mm -hmm. foot formed or, you know, their hair grew a little bit. And then when I got diagnosed with cancer, I thought, wow, while I was doing the dishes or walking the kids to the playground, a tumor was growing inside me. You know, oh. it's a very surreal yes. thing to think that your body is doing something while you're busy living your life. Yes. And that it's taking you in a direction that is so um, opposed to life, right? It is taking you in this way that's stealing the life away from you and um, all without your knowing. So I can imagine, I agree with you, like this invisible... Um, experience, whether you're the patient and it's invisible or this, the cancer itself is invisible to you or the medications even are invisible. And how, how are these supposed to help me kind of fight this? Uh, I don't know what, how have you, 
related to your cancer. Kind of, I know there's different ways people relate to their cancer. Like they sometimes they take on like a, a military thing, like we're gonna fight this cancer. Or um, some people like, well, like especially out here, like I'm really gonna love my cancer and. <laughs> Ah. I'm really going to. I'm going to feed it some kale. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are in Northern California. Yes. yes. Well, that's a possibility, but. Um, no, there was no loving my cancer. I yeah. you was were. actively felt betrayed by my body. I That was something that took mm. years to oh. get over that I felt like I had done so many things for my body. I had, you know, was a yogi. I had been a runner. I ate so yeah. much broccoli, as I always say. <laughs> um, and I'd had two babies, you know, two amazing pregnancies. Like I had, I just felt like my body and I, we were, you know, a team. And so I felt very betrayed. Um, and it took a while for me. Mm-hmm. It took probably two years until it was my sister said something. Again, my very wise sister who yes. said, you know, maybe that's why, not maybe, but this is why you're getting better, is that you had such a strong base that you came in so strong and that's why Mm -hmm. you were able to fight it. Mm -hmm. And that helped me a lot. That helped um, me really turn my head around in terms of um, not loving my cancer, but loving my body and saying, we can do it. And everyone around me definitely had the, let's fight but you know the battle war kind of mentality, mm-hmm. um, and I was more of just let's. I just want to get up and and get the treatment every day and and keep on and keep on trying to get treated so that I can stick around mm. and see my kids grow up. That was mm-hmm. the bottom line for me. Mm. And your sister, uh, you know, in the book, your references to your sister are so. Um, Lovely and uh, and almost um, I'm not sure I can find the right words. I was wanting to know her more in the book. I mean, I left with this feeling of wow, she's an incredibly powerful player in this, and I would imagine a real um, fulcrum in your healing. Like she was um, this powerful ground that you, uh, I think, felt safe within and and her wisdom is kind of just like you're saying here like she kind of pulls you through these tough times or help give you metaphors to help you know love your body while you were in this process but all enormously um, impactful to ultimately your your survival because you were facing I mean let's just back up I, I want to talk about your sister of course fully um, but let's just back up a little bit to your story. You're, you've talked about your two children. I know you're two gorgeous <laughs> <laughs> beings. Um, but here you are, you're a young mother and uh, you're married. You um, Tell us about your life before. Back that up a little bit. So like your professional life, how you saw yourself in the world and and yourself as a mother. Like what was that like for you? Yes, so I had had a wonderful um, working career. I after college, I briefly uh, worked in a law firm, but then I decided to go to culinary school so I could pursue my dream of becoming a food writer. And so that was my twenties. Um, I moved to New York and became a cookbook editor at Simon and Schuster. Wow. Um, had a wonderful time, you know, learning 
the food world of New York, but in the publishing world, and it was just, it was fantastic. That had and to be so exciting. How did you get that gig? Fantastic. Yeah. I moved to New York, I bought a one-way ticket, and it was in the days before the internet was really a thing. Um, and so I wrote cover letters and then faxed them out <laughs> and <laughs> pray that someone would get back to me. And through a college associate and alum, you know, happened to work at Simon and Schuster, and a month later, I had the job. Um, and I, I was, it was dreamy. It was, you know, New York and oh. lunches and food and photo shoots and oh. um, chefs, and it was just, it was fantastic. It and was then, kind of like all the glamour you would have imagined, like this yes. possible, like, oh my god, I'm going to have my New York life. Yes, yes. Um, it was fantastic. Mm. Um, and I met my husband in New York, and then we moved back to California. Um, I went freelance, so I was a freelance uh, food writer, cookbook author yes. for hire author, um, working on different projects. Um, and then we relocated from my husband's job to Los Angeles. Um, I continued my freelance work mm-hmm. and then had our daughter, Penelope, and then continued to write um, about food and wine, and then had our son, Roman, oh. and... After he was about four months old, my husband got transferred back to the Bay Area, and so we relocated. I had taken a break from writing uh, when he was born, but I was actually preparing to go back um, to write a book, I'll never forget, about cupcakes, uh, with a cupcake baker. (laughs) Um, And I was thinking, and Penelope, I was thinking, oh, we could test recipes, it'll be so great. And Roman was about four or five months old. And I started to just not feel like myself. I just felt, um, I was nursing Roman um, and I just felt tired and exhausted and um, couldn't put my finger on it. But I kept saying, I don't feel like myself. Um, Mm. And then about two months later, um, or fast forward, probably about six months, Roman was about a little over a year, I finally went into my GP Mm -hmm. and said, you know, I feel very odd. And she said, I think it's just mastitis, an infection of the breast right? from breastfeeding. And which I, is painful. Which is painful because I was right. having more and more pain. And it turned out that I had a low-grade fever. Um, not uncommon with not mastitis. Uncommon with mastitis. Right. So, you know, at the time I was 37 years old, otherwise perfectly healthy. Right. Um, with no other signs other than intermittent pain. Um, and then the physical, there were some bumps on my left breast that, you know, understandably the GP didn't necessarily know what she was looking at. And she said, I don't do breast exams. So just to be sure mm-hmm. in a week, go see this breast surgeon. And I said, okay, you know, on my way, took antibiotics and a week later, still not feeling any better. I walk into the breast surgeon's office and within f- two minutes, she looked at me and oh. said, you know, I'm concerned. Um, we need to do a biopsy. And this was the week of Thanksgiving. And she said, I need you to go in and have an ultrasound and a mammogram immediately tomorrow. So not understanding, really, I I really didn't understand. I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. breast cancer, obviously, other than what I had seen on TV or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it just did not, I did not connect with the words. Um, no one said cancer right away, but again, because I was in pain, what I was hearing from 
family and a few friends I did tell, they said, you know, cancer doesn't hurt. It couldn't be cancer. Uh-huh. So whatever kind of notion you might have of like, ooh, this could be bad was kind of, you know, you kind of swept that away kind of like allowed that to just kind of pass on through. And you've got these kids. So a lot of those thoughts are not even going to go, you're young, right? All these like, it's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving, my favorite (laughs) holiday. (laughs) Right. I love to cook. You know, my mom and I plan the the wedding, plan (laughs) the menu, um, you know, weeks in advance. I mean, it's it's a thing in our house, the Thanksgiving. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get these tests. And then, you know, I'm going to get the test, going to go to my mom's have Thanksgiving, all will be well. Um, I'll take the painkillers and just, Mm -hmm. you know, go with it. Have Thanksgiving that morning, but throughout that day, I felt worse and worse. It's kind of like having the flu where, you know, throughout the day you kind of, Mm -hmm. you realize you can kind of rally and then by the end of the day, I just, I felt awful. Mm -hmm. Um, Went, didn't sleep all night, woke up early the next morning and called the breast surgeon and said, you know, I need more painkillers. I need something. I'm not feeling any better. And she said, I'm traveling. I'm sorry to do this over the phone. Um, are you sitting down? Uh, you have advanced breast cancer and you need to drive to the hospital immediately. Um, the oncologist on call is waiting for you. And I remember going into just a mode of, again, bringing it back to, to childbirth where you compartmentalize. You know, in my head, it was okay. I need to go to the hospital. I mean, I need to pack a bag. I'm, I'm going to take a shower because I don't know where I'm going to take another shower. And right. I put down the phone and I walked in and I told my husband and I woke my mom up and said, mm-hmm. you know, told her you got to take the kids, called my sister and my sister I feel like she just knew. She just had this mm. sixth sense and um, she let out this wail that I'll never forget. And um, mm. then all I remember is packing the bag and I think my husband you know, said, we'll meet my sister. She lived near the hospital. So we got in the car, kissed the kids, got in the car and drove 45 minutes and checked into the hospital. And I stayed there for three days. And had more tests, and it turned out I had inflammatory breast cancer that had spread to lymph nodes um, under both uh, armpits, essentially. And Um, could they tell that by biopsy, or do they have to do surgery? Yes, so they can feel it, and then the scans and uh everything. So it had spread. They weren't sure, but they knew it had spread significantly. And at the end, it turned out to be 14 lymph nodes on my left side and Mm -hmm. five on my right. And all those were surgically removed later. Yes. Um, and then they saw a mark um, on a bone scan on my rib. And that's... That was alarming. I'm that sure. was when it got much more real because obviously if cancer spreads to your bone... Right. You're already metastatic. Yes. Right. So you've left your primary site, right? The breast. And lymph is still kind of considered... I think you can still kind of have a primary diagnosis. and But once it hits its second spot, then that's what I just, I know the very little I know. Well, I actually did a lot of um, research in metastatic breast cancer and, uh, you know, to write my dissertation and I was... That's incredible. It's incredible. And yeah, that's actually There's so weird. much to it. I, I mean, obviously, as I, as I learned, I mean, initially I didn't even know right. there were types of breast cancer. I didn't know the stages. I knew nothing. All I knew right. was, I would say the past 10 years, my 
well, looking back, my aunt had been diagnosed oh, with right? stage two, um, mm-hmm. but oh. you know was quickly treated and had a double mastectomy and and oh, she essentially did. even then was fine. And it turned out she was very much ahead of the science in terms of she was treated at Duke University, and they knew of this genetic she had mutation. BRCA. She had she had BRCA, but we didn't. Our family, you know, we didn't even think about. I mean, obviously, I was communicating with her during yes. her treatment, but we didn't understand the genetic aspect of it, of course, or pay attention to it really. You know, especially because I was in my late twenties at the time, and right. it was still a really new thing um, to link any sort of genetic material with chances of getting breast cancer. And still, I mean, to be fair, even if you have a family history, that's still going to put you, I think, what in a in a lower. I mean, you're you're at risk. You're at a higher risk. But of all the people getting breast cancer, the the majority of people getting breast cancer are not BRCA positive, um, which yes. is interesting. I I've always found. But though, if you do have the mutation, uh, I think it's BRCA one or BRCA two. Both. I, I'm still learning about all that. But that you. Um, your risk goes up significantly that in, yes. for you individually. Yes. So, for example, if you have a BRCA2 um, mutation, you have an 80% in your lifetime chance of getting breast cancer. And I don't and know it's the... upwards of... It's 80%. Yeah. And I don't know the percentage for ovarian, but that's very high as well. Yes. Um, and the other cancer that is associated with the BRCA gene for women is skin cancer. And so skin, ovarian, breast. And then for men, men can also have the mutation and they are at risk for prostate and skin cancer. And breast cancer. And breast cancer, sorry. I wonder if the male breast cancer is related to then their BRCA gene. I don't know. That would be interesting because I do know there's a a small percentage of men that that, uh, really suffer with breast cancer because of, you know... Now you've you're a man, and oh, I can't imagine. Can't even imagine that. No, that's another, that's a topic for yeah, another that's podcast. Another podcast <laughs> episode. So I'm really fascinated by, of course, the pain. I mean, just listening to this story. You know, I know your story. I've read your story. I feel like even having this more intimate connection with you via your book, but then hearing it, you know, looking into your eyes and hearing it, I, I'm just still transformed by that. Um, awareness of how sudden this came on and how the what you did was you go into work mode, right? You're a mom. So you go into like, let's back the bag. God, are my nails done? You know, right? Even that kind of awareness kind of, I would imagine, gets you through that first um, kind of um, transition into this new phase of life for you. And when does the reality start sinking in? I mean, does it happen as you're hearing these diagnoses or is it in your quiet moments at home or when you're talking with your sister or your husband or? It came, so the diagnosis came quickly, but the acceptance and the understanding of it was very slow to come. Um, I have to say the, mm-hmm. the moment I got to the hospital that day in the ER, I was admitted to the ER and went back behind a curtain and got pain medication. And mm. my because I had an 11 centimeter tumor that was oh. sitting on all the nerves in my okay. that, that, left side. 
Okay, so just an 11 centimeter. Tell us just graphically like the size of it's that. It's about a small grapefruit. Which is astounding. Which in your breast. you don't, again, I did And you were breastfeeding, I right? I was breastfeeding and I was, you know, my bra size was a D when I was nursing. Yeah. I mean, I I'd right. always had, you know, a, a chest. So it wasn't as if it was so big that I, it was so alarming. But then right. when I, you know, when you look at it, I look back at some of the photos and I see you think, oh... It's it is pretty alarming, um, mm-hmm. but then I felt okay. Well, I'm in the hospital. I'm gonna be. We're gonna figure this out. I, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning, I really didn't think anything beyond I was sick. I mean, I knew obviously I was sick, but I didn't go into the really dark, dire places immediately until mm-hmm. after. So I was at my regional local hospital. Until my family said, you know, we really need to go see specialists. Mm-hmm. We need to fly. The first place we went to was MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, Texas, yeah. which is, you know, the, one of the top cancer hospitals in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a dedicated breast cancer center. Um, and they had, at the time, had seen more cases of inflammatory breast cancer than any other hospital in the world. And I should say, you know, inflammatory breast cancer is extremely rare Um, and what makes it, and it's extremely, the mortality rate is very high because most of the time, by the time you find it, um, it's too late because it's such an aggressive form of cancer Yes, and it's so often misdiagnosed, right? which was with me. And especially you had the, right, easily misdiagnosed for you or even felt because you were breastfeeding and it was mastitis and you had all these other... And it's 5,000 women a year in the U.S. are diagnosed with IBC. Um, And so we went there and I felt so uh, relieved. I felt really conflicted to leave the kids and fly to Houston from our house near San Francisco. But, you know, my family said we need to do this. And so my sister and my husband and I got on the plane. And when I got there, I felt like, okay, you know, this is going to be the right place for me. They're going to know what to do. Um, and that began what I didn't know until much later was that the testing, testing and the waiting and that whole aspect of being a patient really began there where you, you think you're going to show up and it's going to be a doctor's appointment and it's going to be like, you know, whatever, getting your, your month, your yearly doctor's appointment. And instead right. it's, you know, show up at 10 a.m. and you might be seen at 1 p.m. and there are 18,000 forms to fill out and mm-hmm. um, there's waiting and there's um, insurance clearances for the tests and then there's scans and it's days, you know, really. It's days. It's days. So now this is your identity now, shifting. You're now, you've gone from young mother, vibrant life to what the heck? And the kind of shock of that, kind of initial diagnoses kind of falling on you, I'm sure a, a hefty dose of denial trying to kind of push out the the actual um, horror that could come with what you're hearing too of like, oh my God, I've got two young children. I can't even, I can't think about that right now. So kind of pushing out the edges of mortality, I would imagine. But as you're doing that, all of a sudden that's seeping in like the possibility of your life changing dramatically as you are taking, you're now like a new, you have this new identity. You're now a patient. 
And that, I have to say, is what you so beautifully describe in your book. Um, in such a, a non-sentimental way, it's really... Good. I'm glad. <laughs> that was the goal. That was the goal. It's true. You did a beautiful job of that. I think the... Um, you're a gorgeous writer, by the way. I Thank love, you. and I love memoir experience. You know, I do love that. So you really melded both of these. Like the, what you're sharing now is like your experience really came through. You didn't. Um, it was not overly um, sentimental. It was not overly um, terrifying. <laughs> I think you delivered it in a way that was real for people that they could feel like, oh God, you know, this. I went through that, and they can identify with you at the same time. I felt your humor come through, which is insane. <laughs> and uh, but that that kind of humor was never done in a way that was um, making light of an incredibly difficult time in your life. And yet the humor, kind of, you know, with your family or with yourself, just you can hear that humor thread pulling you through and keeping you connected to life. And uh, and your own survivorship as it's as your identity is changing from vibrant mom to now patient, and then um, as you describe later in the book to survivor. And of course, we get to be here and hear your story. But I'd love to hear more about your process as um, to kind of since we're talking about the book to kind of shift like. Here you were, a foodie, a food writer, you know, had this New York life and this beautiful husband, and you guys are moving out here, and, you know, you still have your professional identity, and yet now you have this whole new identity of patient, and when does it occur to you that you want to write about this? You kind of mentioned journaling in your book, but I'd yes. like to hear more about that. Well, it's interesting when you mentioned my professional life, because I'll never forget after receiving the diagnosis, um, getting back from Houston and calling my agent about the cupcake book that I was trying to bid, you know, to be the author and saying to both of the agents, you know, I just found out that I have breast cancer, but I should be back. You know, I should probably it, within a year. I, you know, I don't know your time frame, but I I'll be back. You know, don't. And I think about that mm. so often because the naivete, mm -hmm. and then yes, really reminds me when you were speaking of, of the shift into patient. I think of my experience at MD Anderson and how I. It was really the last time where I had these very. I don't know, kind of TV images of being a patient where I was still embarrassed to pull my gown open, where I had rooms. I mean, there were probably at one point between never fewer than between five and 10 um, physicians residents and, and, residents and, and you yes. know, specialists and coming in and, and looking at me and saying hello, but then just looking down at my chest and and I'll never forget that because I, you know, I used mm -hmm. to be very uncomfortable with that. Um, mm. And then after three days there of realizing that you, it's, it, it takes you away, you know, that you're there to have your body treated. They're not, yes. they're not asking you about your kid, you know, they don't, they're there to treat your illness. Mm -hmm. And so it really takes you, the person out of the equation um, mm -hmm. and how was that for you? It was very hard. It took, 
And then it went on because then I went to the next place to get the opinion. I went, we came back to San Francisco, went to UCSF to get another opinion, mm-hmm. um, and then had a whole nother set of scans and everything. And that was another mm. two or three days. And then fast forward to when I started the clinical drug trial and I literally became a number, I became a clinical trial patient, number 985. Yes. And that was pretty much the epitome of mm. becoming and a patient and the epitome of of being an anonymous person that you are not your body and that is really hard it's very hard to mm. treat your body but still try to relate to the medical world in terms of human mm. attributes mm-hmm. you know kindness and humor and yes. and trying to say you know i'm this is me i'm not my cancer and yes. i think that that for so many of us is is an ongoing battle mm-hmm. because even as you go, you know, hopefully as you're into survivorship, it is this question I get all the time, you know, mm-hmm. are, do you bring it up? Are you saying I'm a survivor? Are you, you know, tapping someone on the shoulder at the airport who's wearing a pink scarf or, a, yes. or obviously is, you know, showing the signs of being a survivor or a patient? Um, and, and, and no one, it's it's a very hard path to navigate. Yes. Some days you want to pull the shades down and say, I don't want to engage with the world. And other days you want to march and write letters and participate in the cancer world. So mm-hmm. it's a very, it's, it's, it's never easy. I don't think there's any one answer. There's no one, there's no one way through the, yeah. the road trip, as you say. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm so touched by that, uh, by your experience, like what you're sharing with me about the, how the doctors treated you in a certain way. And they're excellent doctors. This is just something. It's nothing about a particular doctor or doctors. It's, it's how you we come in as a human being and a subject, and then all of a sudden we're looked at as either symptoms or uh, a, a breast, uh, the, you know, an inflamed breast. And it's hard when we need as patients, we absolutely need, we're incredibly vulnerable, our clothes are off, and we've got this parading group of people, which you're so grateful for, these incredible minds to have, thinking about your particular case. But I think this is one of the most difficult experiences of the way we view medicine in our culture. And it there is a real split between um, in our doctor-patient relationship that we used to have, I think, years ago, back in the sanitarium days or sanatorium, whatever it was, the, um, you know, uh, doctors and patients were um, more connected in a way. Nurses touched the patients more, and so did doctors. And God bless our nurses, they still do. But there was, a, there. I think now, like our medical... Um, profession has moved into medical medical education is also moved into seeing things as specific symptomology like this you know this is inflammatory breast cancer and you're going wait I'm Laura over here I am this person and so as patients we really need we keep trying to hold on to that it's like like I'm a subject and um one of the, see, a beautiful writer, her name was uh, Rana Oddish. She's a, a MD, and she wrote a book called In Shock. She became a patient in a very interesting way. Uh, she was uh, about to give birth, and she was an ER doc. 
and uh, and trained dogs. So she she was a uh, I think running the um, training program there at her uh, facility, and I'll have to I can put these in the show notes. But she she describes her what ended up happening was she. Um, uh, basically went into organ failure as she's having a meal with a friend and is in excruciating pain and she ends up getting taken to her, her own facility. So she's being treated there. And what she describes is what happened to her, this kind of progressive, first they're kind of seeing her as a doctor and she's trying to kind of guide a lot of her treatment. And then she becomes completely incapacitated and cannot speak. But she's fully cognizant of what's happening, people coming in and out, treating her like symptoms. And um, and she's over there going, you know, basically you can almost feel her screaming inside going, I'm in here, please relate to me. And so she is able to express like the, the difficulties inherent in trying to train these incredible minds and to keep them symptom focused, you know, to... Uh, you know, navigate all those crazy diagnoses that they ha- and all of the information they have to hold. But, um, but we don't, we can't lose that there is a beautiful human being across from us that's struggling for their life that needs to communicate to us that needs to share something with us, and that has to be listened to as well. And um, and I think the way we bridge it now is by relatedness with our family members and. Um, you know, I hear you really relying on your sister, uh, Leslie, to help you through this. Um, so tell me a little bit more about her. and then, Yes. Yeah. And I would say um, on your point, too, about the doctors, I mean, now that I've been out of it and able to reflect more, too, and read more and speak to other patients and physicians, I think it's the HIPAA laws, the privacy laws are really affecting the physicians and the nurses' ability to connect with you. Um, they're uh, afraid. Say more about that. I like think that impression. Yeah. they are afraid of overstepping bounds or mm-hmm. um, getting too personal. I think that it's it's changed, yes. you know, the level of litigation, obviously, in this country in general, but within the medical world is high. Mm-hmm. And so... I feel like a lot of it is just trying to keep it very, quote, professional and not um, cross a line that they have put in their head, maybe, um, and mm-hmm. not able to just kind of pat you on the back and say, yes. you know, anything comforting. And I would, I have to tell you the story of, at MD Anderson, the world is so small. It turned out a friend of a friend of my husband's was on, is on staff there. And so, and she's a radiation oncologist. And so she came in and because we had an outside personal connection, I think she felt comfortable to really speak more openly. And I'll never forget that because it was the first time a doctor, and it was one of the only times throughout everything that happened where she sat next to me and she pat, and she just put her hand on my shoulder and she said, you have cancer and it F mm. word sucks and it's mm-hmm. okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. Mm-hmm. Forget the warrior and the fighter yes. language. It's okay to just say, this is, this is the worst, you mm. know, some of those kinds of words. Mm. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief for me to say, right. oh, like something honest mm-hmm. is being spoken and yes. not just, you know, millimeters and 
um, milliliters and all these medical words that I had right. never heard and I didn't understand at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to hear something honest was the best thing that I could have heard. And that's, that is really what started my commitment to write down at first the journaling, but then to write yes. the book to say, you know what, a lot of people are not going to tell you what you want to hear you know, for good or for bad. But this is what I felt and this is my honest take on it. These are the honest things I learned and maybe they'll help you. Mm. So you already had a desire then to give back something from your experience as a patient because you you actually had quite an experience. I mean, you know, just all of your treatment modalities that you, um, you know... That I traversed, I did, that I experienced, that I, um, and I think that's where to talk about your family members because they come in, hopefully you're lucky enough, whether it's your family or a friend or whomever, that you find the person as you are more unable to speak and try to speak up for yourself rather, or physically if you are unable to speak or not up to it as it might happen during treatment is to find that person to speak for you, to kind of, not kind of, to act, to meet, it's your proxy. It's someone who's saying, this is a person and this is, hello, you know, let's keep in mind, Mm -hmm. you know, this is my sister, my brother, my cousin. Yes. To have that someone stand up and say she or he is still a human being. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think for me, my sister came in. I mean, my husband was there so much, but he had to work. He has a small business. He, we needed mm-hmm. to keep the health insurance. And so it was my sister who really was able to come with me to more appointments and really um, take the notes and push back and really yes. be my person. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to navigate the world of cancer without that, to me, is simply unimaginable. Mm-hmm. I actually can't even imagine that either. And um, I do. I'm, that's where I'm fascinated too. Is the the uh, how our deep connections actually affect our healing? Um, either breaks in relatedness, right? Like major losses in our lives. How that can lead to very difficult. I mean, I don't want to say a causal relationship, but oftentimes there are like people, you know, after a diagnosis, end up having some kind of major thing um, happening in their lives beforehand. Um, but then also you hear these amazing stories and you are, are one of them of this amazing story of survival that's intimately connected to not only heroics in the medical community and your own heroics of getting to and from these appointments down in LA when you live in the Bay Area, um, but also the deep, deep love and connectedness you felt in your family um, during an incredibly isolating time right? It's, there's no one you can truly relate to. Even your family members, you are in this world that is so unlike any other. Um, and just that incredible isolation leaves us, um, leaves our hearts, um, I think in a lot of pain. And, um, I heard you, you know, in your book, like reaching out to other people, you know, other people who are going through this, which I think is an enormous, um, resource we have and a need we have during that time. Um, and then you were truly lucky enough to have uh, all of your family. But I do, I hear this relationship with your sister. Um, what were you guys like growing up? Like, were you close growing up? How did that kind of 
Uh, it's funny. No, we were, she's three years older than I am, and we were not particularly close. We had different interests and different... <laughs> and I sisters. Think, you know, it was the annoying little sister who was always trying to steal her clothes or hang out, you know, when her friends were over. Um, so we weren't really, I would say, close until we were in our 20s. Um, and then when I... She has gone through a lot of losses in her life, and so I've... I've in terms of friends... And so I have seen and I watched her go mm. through what I would think is unimaginable um, grief. And and mm-hmm. what I realized is seeing that really, seeing how strong she is and seeing her then, she, has, she had three daughters and seeing how what a strong mother mm. and a strong wife and a strong partner and an amazing citizen she is really mm. gives me such a wonderful picture of how I relied on her when I didn't know what she did for me and mm-hmm. a lot of my family did as well is make me see that I could do something I wasn't sure I could do. Mm. And I think that's having mm. people who love you and helping you because at some point it gets so hard mm. yeah. physically and mentally. It's so taxing and your body is just, you're just in disarray. And so incredibly fatigued. Yeah, like it's just physically roadkill <laughs> on your road trip here. And and trying to save energy. You know, I would try to save energy for my kids and yes. try to save whatever energy I could really for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the thought of, and I always say too, after the, any chemo after the first one, rounds of chemo after the first one, they're really the worst because... The, before the yes. first one, you don't know. Yes. You know, you in your head, you've made up what's going to happen, or what it's going to feel like. And then after that, you know. And so, mm. getting your body physically out of the bed and into oh. those appointments, I think, is is one of the hardest things because you mm-hmm. know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have people there and helping you, and then not only mentally coaching you, but physically, I mean, I couldn't drive for right. over two years. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, on and off. Um, it's those things where you are being taken care of physically as well. Yes. Um, and so that's when the lines get blurred and, um, and you rely on everyone to help you. And my sister was wonderful and, and my family, but the one thing they couldn't help me with was the big thing that I wondered, which was, am I going to die? And no one wanted to talk about that. And that's when mm. talking to other patients who were going through it, yes. that's, and a lot of them I only met over email or over the phone. Right. And that really helped, I think, because it's more anonymous. Mm-hmm. You can relate to someone, but you're not sitting with them, feeling them, but yet it's a comfort to say, oh, are you scared? Are you yes. this or that? And um, mm-hmm. And that combined with my family, really helped mm. me keep my head above water. Mm. So even addressing kind of life and death issues that you were facing, but actually talking about them, facing them yourself, which is incredibly difficult, but being able to talk and open that door with other people in the same situation um, allowed you uh, to actually fight for life more. And it's something that you, it sounds like for you, you needed it kind of couldn't actually happen within your family, um, maybe in such an honest way. 
and and even the physicians. I mean, I didn't realize this. Physicians are very reluctant to give you any sort of, you know, life right. span. I don't know. Um, life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in maybe certain cases where it's quite clear, but in my case, it was clear it was advanced, but they didn't really want to give too much of a time frame. They finally right. did because I said, I, I want to know. You know, in the mm-hmm. beginning, I want to know, do I have a year? Do I have six months? Because that will change. For right. me, it would have changed my decisions um, uh-huh. quite drastically. I um, My family knows this. I, we had this to me, it was a joke, but I was serious that I was going to buy one-way tickets to Italy oh. if it didn't look like I was responding. Like that's what I wanted to do. I was not going to spend my last days on this planet, you know, doing target runs and um, right. folding laundry. Like I wanted to go eat spaghetti and and be <laughs> in the Italian with the Italians, and and that's and it got really difficult as things went downhill and up. Hill and down back downhill with my case that we never really knew. And I mm. wanted to talk about planning because of that. I didn't want yes. it to sneak up on me and have, yes. it was really the only thing at that point that I could control was how I could leave, leave the world. And your children. And, and you my have children. children which... And I have two children. They were, you know, Roman was 14 months old and my daughter oh. was four. Mm. And so I felt very strongly as a mother, yes. this sense of organizing their mm-hmm. lives and, and what we were going to plan for them and making sure things were in order as much as we could. Right. And no one wanted to talk about that. Yeah. And it was very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Because I imagine for your family members, which is what I've heard from other family members, is that if... If they let their guard down almost, it's as if, you know, to kind of entertain thoughts of losing you would be to let their guard down, then they weren't serving you. They weren't doing their full function as family members, which was to get you to the finish line, right? We get you over, you back into living. And um, so I oh, think... I, I felt that... I Sorry to interrupt. I just felt that so strongly with my sister that it was this idea of it's not happening on my watch. Like uh-huh. I am... You are not going anywhere, yeah. And having that quiet mm-hmm. strength and and not in a overbearing way, she just I, she never broke down in front of me, yeah. um, mm. and no one did. Really, there mm. was one one time when my mom and I I just started to cry, and she said, "You know, I'm not letting you go." Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that because uh-huh. it was one of the very few times when uh-huh. um, she was real. Yeah, and and then my dad had actually had another moment with my dad too. He said, "You know, I'm, mm. no one's taking you from me." Yeah, and um, I couldn't. I couldn't as a parent now. You know, I I just can't imagine. I can't. What they were going through and my husband and, you know, and at the same time you're trying to, as the patient, trying to keep your head together um, and and get through it. It really is a, a lot of, um, it is a community effort, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, what a blessing that you had oh, such so deep love in your family and people who were available to you know, like 
she has the kind of typical big sister response, like, you know, we're getting there. I love that. You know, she's kind of your action mode. She's getting you through a lot of stuff. Your parents are very real with you. And, um, and she, I mean, mm. my sister can organize her way out of anything. So <laughs> she, I mean, I always used to call her Julie cruise ship director. You know, she's just like has binders and clipboards and, um, and that's who you needed. I mean, she yeah, bindered you- us out of the cancer. I mean, just that, you know, it's, I always tell people, you don't realize what you have to keep track of too. I mean, so you have right. all this going on and then you have the realities of yes. your scans and your paperwork oh and you have to you are in charge of that. It's yes. not like some, you know, magical medical fairy is helping you. I mean, you have to be <laughs> on top of it. And it was it was extraordinary to have that. You know, on top of you said the community, I mean, from the small town, I was there where I grew up, I lived one town over, and a friend put a cooler on my porch. And for 365 days, that cooler was full of food for me and my family. Oh my goodness. And it, you know, it, because you don't think of, again, like who's making dinner, you know, the things that are, you take for granted become, Mm -hmm. it come, become off the radar when you're like, well, how long is it going to take me to get home in traffic from chemo or, you know, how all these details. Hmm. Um, the doctors say A, B, and C, but then when you go back to real life, you know, you're, you have pages and pages of life details to sort through. Right. Well, that's one thing your book is so, um, I think facilitative of is how can I transition from this patient mode? Cause you really go through that. Like, right. Bring your binders, have someone there, be focused. This is what you're going to need. And that's a whole middle part of your book. And then towards the end is when you're like, okay, now I'm here. This is my survivorship, your thrive, what do you call it? Thrivership. Thrivership. Yes, survivor, right? thriver. Thrivership. Yeah. Right. So this now is a new phase, which is completely different life than you thought before. So now you have a new identity. You're kind of moving into another phase now where life is happening. You know, kids need their lunches made. You need, now you're cooking more. You're cooking for yourself now and still discovering what it's like to be, um, you know, in your thrivership, but with still significant challenges to your life. And it's a whole new life. It's beautiful life because I see you. (laughs) I see you. I, I love your vibrancy. I just love you, but I love your vibrancy and your, and I feel like that's an amazing gift you share with those of us. Cause I feel that when I see you, I feel the, um, the preciousness of life. I'm reminded of that. And, uh, and I forget often, you know, when I'm oh, irritated yes. with my kids or, you know, oh, so easy or your dog runs through my yard and chases my cat. <laughs> Let's not bring that up. Please. Okay. Well yeah. done. Okay. So my I had to misbehaving dog. <laughs> but that, um, there is so much to this life yes. and how you are navigating, um, certain losses that you have, you know, either there was early on, there was kind of the chemo brain and, um, that is, is not uncommon for, uh, a lot of patients. Um, but also, you know, from your lymphedema, your loss of physical strength and yeah, you're not running the hills anymore, but you're walking the hills 
And um, so maybe you could just speak a little bit to that, and then we can kind of wind up here. Um, but I'd love to hear about how you're experiencing your 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 new body, your new kind of cellular experience, yes. and uh, your new future. It feels feels really good to have a future, I mean, and I don't say that lightly. Um, and to be able to plan, and um, I still go in every three months, you know, and that's for blood work um, and a physical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in that way, I'm still a little bit with one foot, you know, in cancer land. Um, I do some meditation, you know, before each appointment. I just, I don't take anything for granted anymore. Um, and mm-hmm. in that sense, I think what I'm able to do, you know, it took me a long time to adjust to my new body. Um, I had a double mastectomy, um, you know, my ovaries removed. So I woke up in menopause. So those, the mm-hmm. physical ramifications of those experiences are ongoing. But what I always come back to is how precious and how wonderful the moments are. And I know that sounds like such Mm. a cliche, but Mm -mm. now I look around, I look up. I always tell people, you know, don't look down, down at the ground. Don't look at your phone. Look up, look up around you Mm. and try to just have, you know, even if it's one glorious moment a day, you know, that's more than a lot of us pay attention to. That's more than I ever did. I always say, you know, I was this yogi. I practiced and practiced and thought I was so spiritual. And, <laughs> all, and you know, it took cancer for me to really embrace just the absolute details of life that are extraordinary. And mm-hmm. so when I do come out of my house, you know, and into the world, I try to really bring that. And then I'll, I'll go home. I definitely have my, I need my downtime. I need my, my wind down, recharge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not on, I'm not, yeah. you know, vibrant all of the time, but at least now I know how to more, um, plan my life and not try to just, um, be on this, this hamster wheel, mm-hmm. you know, where you're just kind of lost in the mindlessness of, of tasks. Right. Um, and really being more mindful. You know, I always joke, I'm a much more fun mom. I'm definitely, my <laughs> kids eat much more ice cream. Um, you know, I'm much more likely to say, you know, let's, let's drive out to the beach and, and let's just book it. Let's just go down to Los Angeles or, yeah. you know, do the things because you don't know. And, um, you know, it's a fine line to live with thinking you're going to die tomorrow and thinking, you know, you're, you have forever, you know, you have to find a balance. Um, but I think taking a deep breath and then really, again, finding one thing a day that Mm. blows your mind is, is, is magic to me. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, well, I'm lit up. I'm lit up. And this has been so incredible. Just to, first of all, to read your book now twice. Um, <laughs> once I think in the gallery. Wow, that is a devoted friend. <laughs> <laughs> and want to prepare for this day. But um, I see this book as a, a beautiful service to the world. Um, it is something so needed. It is, I love that you say that it can fit right in your purse and go with you because that's perfect. It's truly 
um, it is something that can be a companion. And uh, and looking forward, how how do you see this life of service kind of continuing? Um, I'm so glad you, that you said that. I that was really my intention with the book is to give back and to help other patients. I always say you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. and it could not be more true with a cancer diagnosis. And so I just hope that the book comforts and informs um, Mm. people who, you know, whether it's patients or caregivers or the family members or, you know, friends. I've had such amazing reactions to people who say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what they're feeling. And that's really where where I try to go is really just pull the curtain back and say, this is mm-hmm. some truth. Um, mm-hmm. And this is my way of giving back. And I, I really do hope it reaches the patients and the caregivers and the people that need some comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love to do much more. I'd love to do much more policy work um, actually about yes. accessibility into the healthcare system and um, the financial toll um, of a cancer diagnosis. And And all these issues that aren't spoken about, but Mm -hmm. I've seen and heard these stories about the ramifications on these people's lives Mm -hmm. um, and all because of a medical condition. So that's really where I would like to go with it. Um, We'll see, right? Now, the past two years, um, just being able to be home with my kids and be present for them has been a gift beyond, um, and getting to travel again, mm-hmm. um, and, and live and soak up new experiences. Um, I'm loving that. So, uh-huh. um, that's so a lot of now. living, some a lot service, of living a, and a lot uh, of packing lunches. <laughs> One thing I just wanted to tie up to that I saw, it's like, as you talked earlier about, you know, how you, there you were in, uh, you know, in all these exams, you know, doctors after doctors kind of parading through and there you are with your exposed breast. And I see what's kind of happened is there's been this kind of transformation of exposure from this kind of physical um, outward expression of who you are. Like this is this is my breast here. This is me. This is my body. And you were kind of trying to cling to your subjectivity in that like, no, this is me. I'm in here. And then now... What I can see that the exposure is is in service of other people. Like now you've fleshed out the here it is, yeah, the your more nuanced kind of intimate experience of healing and transformation, and your exposure of your own self and your family's life is in, incredibly. Um, it's a powerful gift to the world. And not everyone can do that to share these, uh, first of all, write so beautifully about it, but to to actually put themselves out there. It's very different from, you know, writing about food, I'm sure, <laughs> to, to writing about, you know, your physical body and the surgeries you've been through and the intimacy in your family life. And, and, and here you are, that you've taken that exposure and fully brought out who you are in service of uh, maybe relieving suffering or comforting and informing. And um, I just, I can't thank you enough uh, for doing this for for all cancer patients. Not certainly, it's not just for breast cancer patients. It's Mm -hmm. for all cancer patients. Um, And I do know that the service is your 
uh, taking your love out into the world is a, a beautiful thing for your own healing as well. And uh, I hope I can support in any way um, possible. And please, please ask as we move forward in our friendship and work. Well, when you take the fear away, it opens you up to so many new things. And that's really what I've come out with. You know, the worst thing that could have happened, some people would say, is the, that you might die and that you, you're staring at death. And I don't fear that anymore. And mm. that's opened me up in ways that it's really, I felt compelled to write the book. It really came through me. It was this, what can I do? This is what I can do. I can write. This is what I can give back. Um, And out of all the bad things that happen, look at the good that can still come out of it. You know, just that one good thing. I hope to do many more than one good thing, but that's really what guides me now. Mm -hmm. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right. Well, let's hope this is the first of many conversations, and uh, I look forward to more. Okay, darling? Me too. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye. That was amazing. Well, good news. She has already agreed to come back to discuss parenting issues while dealing with cancer. In the meantime, if you have a friend or family member dealing with cancer, Do yourself or them a favor by reading this book. To find out more about Laura or to purchase her book, go find her website at lauraholmeshadad.com. And if you have any more questions about this particular podcast, please check out our show notes at tandemhealing.com. All right. Bye for now.